0: and at checkout enter the discount code nation30 that's n a t i o n 30 for 30% off of your purchase
1: you're listening to the average conservationist podcast brought to you by go hunt and in partner with 2% for conservation sign up today to become an insider at gohunt.com Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fish.com and wildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening. Uh, Whether you are on the way to a tree stand, if you're, you know, heading out for A weekend of camping, uh, whatever the case is, I really appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Uh, So for week two of Conservation Month, uh, I am joined by some fellow Michigan residents, uh, Nick Green and Ian Fitzgerald, and they uh, work for Michigan United Conservation Clubs, uh, or MUCC as uh, a lot of people know them by. Uh, MUCC is the Michigan affiliate of the National Wildlife Federation. Um, and <clears throat> really, we talk about so much. Uh, uh, Nick is uh, works uh, on the public uh, information side of things. Um, Ian is on the policy side of things. So throughout the conversation, we really get a good blend of a lot of <clears throat> you know what these two uh, are kind of responsible for. Uh, you get a little bit of the uh, inner workings, I guess, you, uh, if you will, uh, really, of, of how uh, a lot of these um, conservation organizations work uh, with what they're doing, uh, with policymakers, uh, with lobbyists working with uh, state game officials, um, you know, really trying to do all that they can for the betterment of wildlife, habitat, and, and everything here in Michigan. Um MUCC is not a uh, uh, species-specific organization, so they're really trying to tackle anything and everything out there uh, as it pertains to wildlife. Um, And we just, we really have a great conversation. And I think there's, we kind of talked about this uh, after we had wrapped up recording, is there was so much more that, you know, even I wanted to touch on um, as far as what they do, And just a lot of like success stories uh, that MUCC has had over the years, uh, kind of what they're uh, looking to get into or get involved with uh, in the coming years. But, you know, despite uh, not covering a lot of that, we still have a ton of great stuff that we cover. And uh, this was uh, one of the more interesting conversations for me because, you know, so much of this stuff all pertains, well, really everything all pertains. Uh, to my home state of Michigan here, so to be able to get a deeper understanding of what MUCC is doing and, and how they're looking out for wildlife, and you know ways that they're able to get their uh, members uh, involved and engaged in conversation uh, conservation uh, was really awesome. So this week, episode seventy three, Nick Green, Ian Fitzgerald. Uh, before we get into the conversation with the guys, though, I want to take it to take a minute to tell you about our friends over at Stone Glacier. By now, uh, you guys have heard me speak at length uh, about the quality gear that Stone Glacier is putting out. Um, Really, anything that you need for the hunt uh, this year. Uh, I'm running the uh, Skyline Bino Harness. I got that late last season only got a chance to wear it on one hunt. Uh, But I've been wearing it so far this year. Uh, The thing is incredible to use. One hand, super light, super streamlined uh, it fits uh, it's very modular so it fits really any size binos uh, that you're running uh, so super awesome in that regard uh, you know not only that I'm running their avail 2200 pack um, in and out of the uh, the woods every time I'm out <clears throat> I've been using that for the last two seasons uh, I don't have a bad thing to say about it high quality uh, lots of uh, you know very functional uh, pockets you know all sorts of things everything that that us, uh, you know, hunters look for in a pack, uh, Stone Glacier has that. And not only this pack, but all of their packs. Um, so if you guys haven't, uh, also definitely be sure to download the Stone Glacier app and just really stay up to date with everything that Stone Glacier has going on. Um, and, uh, yeah, so head over to StoneGlacier.com and check them out. All right, joining me on the podcast today from Michigan United Conservation Clubs, or MUCC, I have Nick Green and Ian Fitzgerald. Guys, how are you?
2: Doing well. Good, good.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I appreciate. <clears throat> excuse me, I appreciate you guys making some time. I know I reached out to Nick pretty last minute here, uh, but we're doing Conservation Month on the podcast here, where as opposed to a lot of previous episodes, we're kind of focusing on uh, you know businesses or individuals who are two percent certified since we we. Um, partner with 2% for Conservation on the podcast, uh, we wanted to kind of dedicate October to the different organizations uh, that a lot of people are, are members of, uh, you know, a lot of these organizations that are doing tremendous work, we either, either at uh, kind of a nationwide level or, you know, thankfully, you know, we're all here in Michigan. So I wanted to definitely uh, get you guys on and kind of hear more about MUCC, what they're doing, you know, the role that you guys play in there and everything like that. So uh, I'm excited
2: to hear more and I, I'm glad you guys had, had the time. Yeah, we appreciate having us. Uh, So my name is Nick Green. I'm our public information officer for Michigan United Conservation Clubs. And uh, my name is
3: Ian Fitzgerald. I'm the policy coordinator and special events coordinator as well with Michigan United Conservation Clubs.
1: All right. So Nick, why don't you go first? So what exactly does the public information officer job entail? Um, You know, sometimes it's it's a little weird for me asking these questions, Uh, especially, I mean, Nick and I, we've we've gotten to know each other a little bit over the past year or so, um, working together to try to raise some money. Uh, so I feel like I know the answer. So it's always weird asking a question when you kind of know the answer. Uh, but why don't you go ahead and tell us anyway?
2: Yeah. So I kind of work through all of our communications channels. Um, you know, I always tell people I have to know enough to be dangerous, but not, not enough to be as dangerous as Ian. Um, so, you know, all of our policies, all of our, our resolutions that are brought forth by members, um, you know, anything we're working on to to implement or kill in the legislature at the NRC, you know, again, I have to be able to talk about all of those issues at a very broad level. Uh, and then when we when we need to do kind of deep dives, I, I depend on folks like Ian, like Amy to talk more, uh, you know, specific and targeted about policy. So that's kind of one facet of my day to day job. Um, And then the other is being the editor of our publication, Michigan Out of Doors. So since 1947, we've published Michigan Out of Doors magazine. Um, It's a 100-page quarterly journal, so I'm a one-man team in that endeavor. Uh, I run advertising. I run copy editing. I run layout. I solicit articles and do all of that. So those are the two main parts of my job. So how did you wind up uh, in that role? I
1: mean, what were you doing kind of before uh, coming on board at MUCC? Because I believe uh, your predecessor, uh, what we had on the podcast before, uh, Drew Youngdike.
2: Yeah, so I, I went to school for journalism later in life. Uh, I think I went to college at 22, 23, somewhere around there. Um, in grad, before I graduated, I had started work at Cadillac News as a beat reporter. So I was working for a daily newspaper up there. Um, and Bob Garner, who many folks throughout Michigan know as the host of Michigan Outdoors Television, and he was a Natural Resources Commissioner. He worked hard on the, the Natural Resources Trust Fund when it was implemented in the, implemented in the 70s. Um, he had read my writing and knew that Drew was going to be leaving. Uh, he had ties to MUCC and, and thankfully talked to Dan Eichinger, who was our, our executive director at the time, into giving me an interview. Uh, and it kind of all just went from there. So it was kind of a a series of fortunate events that I happened to be in the middle of. And I, you know, I was blessed in Cadillac at the newspaper to be able to write about uh, natural resources and conservation things. Because that's just kind of the culture up there. Everyone hunts and, and fishes. Yeah. Um, so it lended itself well to to kind of having a starting place for this job. And I had all the training to do you know the the layout and all of that so it kind of just lined up and worked out well
1: yeah it kind of goes back to the old adage it's not necessarily what you know but who you know to kind of help at least get that foot in the door right and kind of get you in those positions i mean obviously you still have to interview and all that but no that's very cool and you're right um yeah i don't want to say life is different uh in kind of the the northern lower michigan and but i mean that's that's where i grew up and obviously hunting and fishing and that outdoor lifestyle is, uh, much more prominent, I guess, than like Southeast Michigan where I'm at now. Um, uh, so no, that's cool that you had that opportunity, uh, to, to write, you know, prior to, uh, you know, coming over to MUCC now.
2: Yeah. It, uh, as I always tell people, November 15th was, was a holiday. I mean, we had that day <laughs> off of school every year, so. Yep. Much like people would remember, maybe October twentieth, you know, four four decades ago down here for pheasant season. Yeah, uh, that was what we had for the the rifle deer opener up north. So yeah, yeah, it was a special place to grow up and and write about. So are you originally from the Cadillac area then? I am. I'm from Mesick, uh, so about thirty miles
1: south of Traverse
2: City. Yeah.
1: Okay. I uh I grew up um, east of you, uh, small town called Lewiston, um, yep. which is yeah. A lot of people know it for two reasons, either the golf course or the bar, right? I mean, that's that's just kind of how everyone, I mean, I feel like that's a lot of northern Michigan towns is like there's either a golf course or a really good bar, and that's just kind of how you how you decipher or distinguish between the two. So, Ian, tell me
3: about uh, your journey to, that brought you to MUCC. Sure. So, I, I was fortunate uh, at my later years at Michigan State University, I was chosen to be a glass and scholar intern. It's about 15 individuals who are chosen out of a large pool to have an internship with a state-based conservation organization. And I, I just happened to be paired with Michigan United Conservation Clubs. And at the time, I, I didn't know much. Uh, you know, I had an interest in policy, but I didn't know the infatuation that I'd have, especially with a, an organization like MUCC that has such historical, I mean, founded in 1937, it was part of the Bottle Bill in the 76, the Natural Resources Trust Fund in 76. And just has a lot of deep roots in policy. So I've been very fortunate to kind of be under the wing of our executive director, Amy Trotter, who's just an absolute pro when it comes to policy and testifying before all these committees. And so I, I was lucky enough in early 2019 to transition into a full-time position. And my, my, my total position, I'm, I'm the policy coordinator, but I kind of I break it down into three pillars. I've got policy, which is both internal and external policy. So internal, we can get into a little more about that with MUCC membership externally with the Natural Resources Commission or Michigan Legislature Committees. And then the other pillars include fundraising. I help with all of our appeals, with our calendars, some of that stuff, and then special events as well, which is our uh, convention that we hold where our members actually vote and pass certain policy resolutions, our MUCC charity shoot that we do, um, and other events here and there for uh, legislators and things like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's the, like the policy side of things. And unless I feel like you're, you're really kind of tuned into the world of conservation and a lot of these different organizations uh, that are out there, like they, I don't think that they necessarily understand all the work that kind of goes on behind the scenes with, with policy, with talking to lawmakers, uh, biologists to get recommendations, you know, talking to their, their members uh, and everything like that. And, you know, really try to get a feel for what it is or how they feel about certain issues that are affecting, you know, whether it's at a state level, a national level, whatever the case is, and so that's why uh, I'm glad that Nick suggested suggested to to bring you on to talk, you know, more from the policy side of this because, uh, you know, throughout the you know year plus of doing this, we've never, I haven't had a guest on where we've actually kind of been able to get into, you know, kind of the the nitty gritty of kind of really what it takes for a lot of these, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bills and laws and all these, you know, things that 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 happen like what that
3: process really looks like. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting. We always, we try to set a policy agenda at the beginning of each session. Legislative sessions run every two years, um, kind of concurrent with the House members. It's term limited. They have two years before they need to get reelected. Uh, and, and that seems to kind of go out the window. We've got a lot of victories that I can I can highlight, but it's, it's a mad dash, especially this past year with COVID and everything that's been happening. Um, a lot has been focused and a lot early on was just focused on finances and the budget in the legislature. And, uh, you know, a lot of that early work with the DNR closing a lot of their offices, we saw that there actually was a decent amount of surplus that was saved. Um, so we're kind of looking at priorities and where that that funding could be put to. And and we're always trying to pull down money and, and dollars for conservation on, on the budget side. Um, and then we're always trying to bat down certain bills and, and legislation that just doesn't make sense. It's violating Proposal G which gives the Natural Resources Commission the exclusive manner and method of authority over manner and method of take. Um, so also, you know, kind of a dichotomy with the legislature, we're always working with the Natural Resources Commission, which is where those things should be happening, where bag limits should be being set, and where we kind of take and take a look at what our own member policies are, and we try to influence and testify at the Natural Resources Commission to make that, those bills and policies real life and, and statute.
1: Yeah, so that's uh, so. Uh, jump in at any point here if I'm kind of speaking out of turn, or if I'm just what I'm saying is just not correct. But when 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 you're talking to your members, or you're trying to you know uh, work with the NRC to to get a bill passed or something you know brought into law, are you kind of is it uh, this process where you know you're working with your members, you're working with the DNR with wildlife biologists, people that are in the field on a regular basis, to kind of help make those recommendations to the NRC. I mean, is I mean, what is? I, yeah. Kind of walk me through that a little bit.
3: Sure. I guess let's go from the very start, which is any MUCC member can introduce a proposed policy resolution. What we call it's kind of in a whereas therefore format. So whereas introduce the problem, and therefore be it resolved, here's the solution. So for an example, and something that we did get passed, was the Saturday turkey opener, which that was first started in 2019, we got it passed in late 18, or sorry, excuse me, late 19 we got it passed, and 2020 was the first year that there was a Saturday turkey opener. Um, So one of our members years ago decided they wanted that to be, it it was on a Monday and they wanted it to be on a Saturday. So they introduced a resolution, they got it through our process, which it has to go through a Conservation Policy Board meeting first, we have those quarterly. And that's a smaller body, about 40 members, who are really interested in our policy. If it makes it through one of those quarterly meetings, it goes to our annual convention, which that occurs usually around June. Uh, And then if passed there by a body of our whole delegation, which is 100 voting members representing clubs and individual members around the state, it becomes official policy of MUCC. So we do a review of what all of our official policies are, and then we go and lobby, talk to biologists to get the information, the facts, and go and lobby natural resources commissioners. And we're pretty effective at it too. So is that, I mean, from a, from a time frame standpoint,
1: uh, you know, when it was introduced in 2019, uh, it went into effect in 2020. I mean, that kind of, you know, call it, you know, 12 to 18 months timeframe, depending on when it was actually introduced. I mean, is that pretty standard or is it just kind of depend on, um, you know, what is being brought to the
3: table and what they're trying to get implemented? Sure. I think the member mm-hmm. resolution passed in 16, we had gotten that passed at the natural resources commission in 19 and then the first season where it was actually, you know, took effect was 2020. Okay. Um, that can really depend. The Natural Resources Commission has certain cycles that they run on for d- different game species. So for turkeys, for example, it's every three years. So we're going to be going back into another turkey cycle in the spring of 22. Okay. Um, and that can take it all depends on if there's certain controversy on an issue. So at the Natural Resources Commission, things need to be up for 60 days. It kind of is new business and then old business. And that allows the public to have engagement and there's enough time so that nothing's just getting rammed through without any you know, public and stakeholder engagement. Um, if there is contention on an issue and there's a lot of public feedback, sometimes they'll hold items month after month. I think we did deregulations last year for a period of eight months on just a few items that took forever. And also deer regulations are supposed to be on a three-year cycle. And, you know, I think since uh, Amy knows better, cause she's been around the world a lot longer, but for the last 12, 15 years, it has been every single year that we're opening up the, the deer regulations <laughs> cycle. So, I mean, like from the deer side of things, because obviously we're,
1: uh, you know, a few weeks into to archery season or just deer season in general here in Michigan. Is that a lot of like APR, baiting, um, bag limits and stuff like that? Because obviously this year is the first year um, like to acquire, an, a, to acquire a doe tag. Uh, it's just like a general tag. You can just buy one. I think maybe you just have to specify uh, public or private land. But for the most part, like you, like, you don't have to put it in to, to get a tag depending on your unit or anything like that.
3: Right. Yeah, that is a universal antlerless license. And I think in the UP, there is a tiered system where you okay. do have to kind of get into a, in the the southern part of the UP, it is kind of open and a little bit of a northern reach. It, it is kind of a, a lottery or, or application period. And then in the furthest north, they don't have any uh, tags available. Um, but certain thing, it, it's all across the board. So the NRC has you know, the exclusive authority over manner and method of take. So it could be APRs, it could be, I know they're gonna be looking at uh, mandatory reporting for next year, because currently there's a voluntary reporting system that's in place the first time ever. Um, And and next year they're gonna be looking at mandatory reporting, You know, which there's people on both sides. And and most of these issues, whether it's APRs, baiting, you know, uh, deer hunters are some of the most passionate people that I've (laughs) ever met. uh, And they've got a lot of, every deer hunter has an opinion and it's great and we love to listen to that. Sometimes MECC is, is neutral on some of those issues, like APRs, um, baiting we do have a, a position on. but And the reason being is because our policy resolutions, if it's gonna be affecting state law or Natural Resources Commission, which that's not quite law, it's wildlife conservation order, which it, it, it is law, but it's not through the regular bill system of the legislature. It needs to, those resolutions from our members need to pass at a two-thirds majority. Okay, If there's not pretty good consensus then you know some things have maybe gotten 60% but if they've never gotten that quite of a, a high bar and an example for that is is APRs
1: yeah the one of the changes that was put into effect uh, in the 2020 season um, was the like extended rifle season or like second rifle season almost that came like the what was it was there like a, I think it was a another additional week uh, in early December like the second week of December um, which I you guys would have to correct me if you know this, but I believe it was in areas where maybe CWD had been more prominent. Um, I don't know if it was just to try to um, increase opportunity uh, in kind of the, the later season, uh, which is typically, uh, well, I think it was actually the week after muzzleloader, uh, which would have been like late, late archery season. Um but I wasn't mad about it because I fall into the second, uh, my the zone where I hunt, it falls into that second uh, rifle season. And that's when I was actually able to get my my buck last year was like December 10th or something like that. Just very, yeah. very late season when a lot
3: of times I'm probably not even venturing out, you know. Right. Yeah, so certain things like that. I know, I think that was part of the, the muzzle loader in the south zone. They allowed uh, any firearm to be used. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And so, and it's good that, we have a system like the Natural Resources Commission where it can be fluid and make changes, much like our wildlife and natural resources is very dynamic. You know, if a lot of these things were at the legislature, <laughs> we'd be screwed. I mean, it takes it can take years to change something that seems right. like, you know, milk toast.
2: <laughs> Yeah, And another important point to note about our Natural Resources Commission is that it's required to be bipartisan. Um so you know our legislature has currently has a house and senate controlled by uh, Republicans and then a an, uh, Democratic administration. So you can see how sometimes that causes problems trying to get things done. Yeah. With a more bipartisan landscape, especially at the NRC, you know you're just you're not the. Policies you're enacting aren't changing day to day or year to year because you have kind of a, a checks and balances system on it, um, and the, the commissioners are all volunteer basis. You know, they're not paid. These are folks who are vetted. They go through a senate advice and consent process. Um, so you know, MUCC is truly and has been since since the NRC's inception uh, in favor of kind of keeping the politics out of the body that manages our, our game regulations and that's very important to us and it's something we work on daily. I mean we, we were working on it this morning. Yep.
1: yep. Putting out those fires. Uh I mean but that's and that's the way I mean I, I completely agree with that because, you know, regardless of the side of the aisle that you fall on, you know, us as outdoorsmen and outdoors women like we all want the same things, right? We all want a healthy population, you know, a healthy habitat or healthy herds, healthy habitat for these animals to thrive in. And it doesn't do, you know, any, any kind of good because if you're out in the field, if you're, you know, bird hunting, if you're, you know, fishing, whatever it is, I mean, you can't tell the difference between who's on the right, who's on the left, but you guys are, you know, everyone's out there enjoying, you know, what it is that, you know, the great state of Michigan has to offer. So it's like, why, why should that even be, you know, a topic of conversation
2: when, you know, trying to discuss the wildlife? Conservation is not red or blue. It's camouflage. It's a line we always use. I
1: like that. That's a good one. I know 2% is like, I mean, that's why, you know, who we, we partner with on the podcast. I mean, they are, they like to keep things purple and, and you know, a, a much more neutral color, but I kind of like the camel thing. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> so... Nick, can you give me a little bit of a history lesson uh, as far as MUCC uh, is concerned?
2: Yeah, so in, you know, just to kind of jog folks' memory, um, you know, kind of the start of the 1900s, we were really in the middle of the the market hunting era and we were depleting resources. Um, We were, you know, folks were harvesting game to sell it, essentially. Uh, We were just kind of taking things faster than they could regenerate. Um, you know, fast forward to the 1930s, that's kind of when the conservation movement started. So we had coming off the heels of the Dust Bowl, um, you know, we had, it was really that market hunting and the decline of species that made conservationists kind of realize that we needed to do something. So in came the the North American model of wildlife conservation, which is kind of how we in North America Um, operate conservation operationalize it through using hundred dollars so MUCC during those times um, got together and what was being proposed in Michigan at the time was to have our governor appoint the director of the Department of Conservation was what it it was a precursor to our DNR Uh, so MUCC as it has done since our founding and this was the reason we were founded was we said we don't want the DNR director appointed by a governor. We want an independent body to be hiring that DNR director. So that's kind of how we started in 1937. Uh, we had a group of, I'm trying to think of how many sportsmen's clubs. I um, can't crazy. remember, yeah, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but a group of sportsmen's clubs come come together and kind of get our original charter. Um, Harry Gaines was our first president. And they, they kind of decided, you know, what the charge of MUCC would be. They laid out all the, the bylaws, kind of the important work that we would do, the, the, um, how resolutions would work. So that, you know, that was kind of how we were started in the 30s. And then it only gained momentum as we moved through the 1900s. You know, you got in the 60s, our rivers were on fire. Uh, that was a big issue that MUCC worked on then, and we had, you know, there were uh, laundry chemicals, phosphorus, I believe, being dumped in our rivers from, from chemical plants. And, you know, then we, we moved into the 70s, and as Ian talked about, we started to work on the bottle bill. So for folks that don't know what the bottle bill is, you know, in Michigan we have a 10-cent deposit. Uh, we were one of the first, if not the first in the nation, to implement that, uh, and it really helped clean our roads up. It kept bottles and cans off the sides of our roads. Uh, and then in the 80s, you know, we did a lot of federal protections for for wetlands and waterfowl. We worked a lot on that. Um, so we've just we've kind of, you know, through the years and decades, different challenges, different conservation issues have arose, and we've always we've always kind of carried the mission of of being not a not a species specific organi- organization or not focused on one thing. So sometimes that's our shining light and our Achilles' heel. You know, we. We, we can't always focus right on deer or right on pheasants or right on ducks. We have to try to bring everyone under the tent and do this work. And it's proved very valuable for Michigan. Uh, when you look at kind of conservation histories and victories throughout other states and even in the Midwest, you know, Michigan has some of the more, most robust public lands. You know, we have 4.7 million acres or somewhere around there of state-owned public land. Um, you know, we have endless opportunities to fish and hunt. We have fairly, fairly liberal game regulations and hunting regulations for how you can hunt. And that's all a testament to the conservationists before us, uh, folks kind of thinking ahead. Um, you know, our laundry list at MUCC of accomplishment goes through, I mean, we've hundreds and hundreds from turkey reintroductions to the first turkey season to the moose drops in the UP we worked on. Um, to fighting invasive species i mean we've just we do so so much uh, throughout all facets of facets of conversation conservation including habitat you know wildlife management communicating about it and education
1: okay so a few questions uh, i was kind of <laughs> jotting stuff down there while you were talking because i didn't want to forget them so first thing uh, i'll ask because it's uh when you're talking about like you mentioned the reintroduction of like turkeys, uh, and things like that is M U C C at all involved with, I think they're trying to like reintroduce the, uh, the grayling, um, back into Michigan. Uh, like, have you guys had any part in that? Um, you know, I guess at any level.
2: Yeah. So we actually have a resolution, uh, from a member, I believe it was passed in 2018 probably uh and that resolution asks that we thoroughly vet um how the arctic grayling initiative would work and that includes where the funds are coming from where these fish are planted you know making sure we're not limiting angler opportunity uh in streams that these fish are planted in Uh, so we we have a seat on the council that kind of is working through that right now um we you know we haven't been super outspoken promoting it because we're just the the logistics aren't quite there yet of what exact streams they're going to be in you know where they're going to be at what is this going to do to other anglers trying to fish those streams yeah um so in the early talks of the Arctic grading and grayling initiative you know they talked about streams that weren't really viable uh for grailing plants they had high populations of predatory walleye pike um you know the, the, they talked about below Houghton Pile Dam and the temperature reaches in the low 70s uh, quite frequently. So it just wasn't, you know, the planning wasn't quite there. They are in a much different place now, several years later. Uh, Nicole Watson with MSU is doing a lot of great work on that, the Arctic Grayling Initiative. So it's something we're tuned into, but we're not kind of heavily engaged in the communication part of it and talking about it quite yet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know that's one that I've been seeing pop up for, you know, better part of probably the last three years. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm always, always kind of curious, you know, where those things actually stand. Is it just, um, you know, just something to kind of grab attention for a little bit and then it gets kind of placed on the back burner, but it's nice to know that, yeah, there are people kind of out there actively working, um, to see if this is something that is viable that you said. I mean, uh, I know it's, it would, I could see it certainly putting a lot of, uh, extra stress on certain, um, you know, streams, uh, where they would be introduced because everyone wants to catch a, you know, catch a grayling, right. And it's, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, opportunities anywhere close to here to be able to do that. So yeah, I can, I'd imagine you have to, you know, weigh the pros and cons and figure out as best as possible what that effect could potentially look like on not only, uh, the population that you're trying to reintroduce, but you know, the existing, um,
3: population as well. Just something quick to chime in there too. The current challenge that we're facing, which is stream temperatures for Grayling, I think we're only going to see uh, get worse in the mm-hmm. coming years as we see steam, stream temperatures rise. I mean, it's a, a, impacting trout populations as well. So,
1: yeah, no, that's certainly something to uh, to think about because I didn't even I didn't even think about like that side of things with just yeah your you know your average temperature just continuing to rise and what that what that does um, you know where they can maybe. Uh, survive, but you know you can't. You as as a fisherman, you can't be handling fish the way you you know normally would when when those temperatures you know even creep up the
2: you know the slightest bit. Yeah, and the the unique thing about grayling is you know they require such a cold stream, much like brook trout. I mean, those are really our two native fish here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just they outcompete brook trout. Uh, so when you start looking at what streams might be viable in 10 to 20 years, you know it's gonna it's gonna require a lot of thinking from a lot lot of people who are smarter than us uh, <laughs> trying to figure this issue out. You know what they're doing now is also much different than we've ever done. They're talking about remote site incubators, which are actually like pails they dump in the stream, kind of rear the fish up a little bit so they can get acclimated to the stream and then they open them up. We've never done that in Michigan. It's worked out in Montana. So I'm excited to see where this goes. Uh, MUCC's main concern will just be that we're not impacting other fish populations right. negatively and that angling pressure or angling opportunity will be able to remain in some form. You know, we don't want a, a blue ribbon section of stream close down to fishing because we're planning grayling, right. you know, or, or can we manage it some way that allows that somewhere and opens it somewhere else? You know, we're just, we're, we're trying to figure out all those logistics right now.
1: Yeah. Uh, so one of the other questions I had there when you were uh, kind of giving the history uh, of MUCC and you kind of touched on that, you know, throughout the the past and, you know, there's different decades where there's kind of different issues uh, that you need to tackle uh, or need to try to solve. Do you notice or have you noticed, you know, kind of historically, like any types of trends, uh, of things that maybe kind of pop up, let's say, like every 10 or 15 years that you have to, um, you know, kind of, you know, retackle or rebattle or, you know, have to, uh, you know, pass certain, le- <clears throat> excuse me, certain legislation to try to combat, uh, you know, maybe any changes that have occurred over that time period? Or is it literally it's just, you know, every it's it's just ever changing?
3: Uh, Yeah, I I think wildlife disease kind of comes to mind. That's something that's kind of ongoing. But, you know, as we look towards certain some of our own policies like that, we opposed baiting in 2002 when TB and and chronic wasting disease came a little bit later, it was first presented. And that's something that every few years, you know, our members take a look at internally and see, you know, is our policy kind of accurate on this and, you know, as chronic wasting disease spreads through the landscape, it's something that our members are charged with, that should we still oppose the baiting and feeding of white-tailed deer and elk? Um, So that's just kind of one example of something that pops up. Uh, And then also, I I might let Nick take this, but wolf management as well, you know, um, that's been something that's gone on a merry-go-round of federal listing and delisting, and it comes back, you know, the last time we had a wolf hunt was, I believe, 2014. Um, and now we're looking to maybe have wolf management again, especially after the recent federal delisting earlier this year. Yeah. Those are two, sorry to cut you off there, Nick. Those are two things,
1: uh, baiting and, you know, wolf, uh, you know, controlling the wolf population. We'll just, we'll just say that are yet two things that like you kind of touched on earlier, like everyone has an opinion on it, right? Like no one's kind of, eh, I'm indifferent on it. Like if you're, you know, any type of outdoorsman or outdoors woman, like you absolutely have,
2: uh, have an opinion on that, those, two op- those two topics specifically. You know, I, I also think that a lot of what we work on, even speaking more broadly, is cyclical. You know, we talk about rivers being on fire in the 60s and what, what humans were doing to the landscape and the environment to make that happen well, now look where we're at with streams that have crept up, you know, four, five, six degrees. We have, we have mallard waterfowl migrations that are a week later. We have, you know, aspen that's moving further and further north and rough grouse disappearing from southern reaches of the Midwest, you know. So, yeah, this is all cyclical. A lot of our human effect on the landscape uh, and our policies that we worked on 20 years ago And that's something MUCC has been good at as we kind of evolve with the times. And we, you know, something that we may take a stance on 10 years ago, our members are not, you know, that proud that they're not willing to change their stance 10 years later if new information comes available. And scientists and biologists say this is these are the practices we should be implementing in wildlife management, habitat management. And I think, you know, we just learn from those cycles every time um but there is going to come a point as we have conservationist decline and hunters and anglers where you know we may not have the people in the ranks to tackle these challenges uh and i think you know that's what we're looking for you know everyone knows about r3 and the it's a huge buzzword in the conservation world but you know that's another one that's continually popped up for decades as we've known we're losing hunters how do we get them in so yeah, I mean, we work on a lot of things that are cyclical. Sometimes, as our executive director says, you know, it's whack-a-mole. Things just <laughs> pop up, and we're just trying to do what we can do to tamp them down or rise them up if they should, you know.
1: Yeah, no, I've got to imagine that uh, it's, uh, you know, w- real quick, what is your, member, your membership base? How many members does MUCC have?
2: We have about 40,000 members in Michigan, uh, and those are divided into two categories. So individual members, which are... Just, you know, someone who doesn't belong to a conservation shooting club joins. It's, it's $35. They get the magazine four times a year. Still have all the benefits of being a member. And then we have our club members, our affiliate club members, who are, you belong to a conservation shooting sportsman's club. Uh, they pay us $5 a head for their membership to be members of MUCC. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the older model, the more traditional uh, avenue that folks joined MUCC as they were part of clubs and then came and came to us through that uh, in the last decade or so we've seen a big uptick in individual members who come to us really don't have an affiliation anywhere else.
1: Yeah. And I think that that probably, at least in my experience or, or my opinion, speaks to more of the, the newer generation of hunters, um, you know, taking that uh, like uh, the single membership um, route to, to joining different conservation clubs and things like that. But with 40,000 members, uh, I mean, how are you guys keeping people engaged? Uh, you know, your members engaged. You know, what are you guys doing um, for like volunteer work, different things like that for your members?
2: Yeah, so MUCC really operates under four pillars. Um, so the first one is policy policy, and advocacy. We've kind of talked about that. Um, the next one is education. So we run Michigan Out of Doors Youth Camp, which is down in the Waterloo Recreation Area near Chelsea. Uh, we've put over 58,000 kids through that camp since 1946. Uh, so they come to us for an overnight week camp. Uh, they get hunter safety certified. There's different themes that include, you know, uh, water quality, hunting camp, fishing camp, trapping camp, forestry. Um, you know, so we do all sorts of things. Leave no trace is another theme we've had, um, that's kind of our education. Another piece of education, I guess, is uh, going into schools and, and taking our skulls and pelts into schools and helping to kind of introduce kids to, you know, you've seen a fox out in the wild, maybe, or a coyote. Well, here's here's their pelt. Here's what their skull looks like. Here's their track. Here's their scat. Trying to connect them a little more with something they may not get to see, you know, only from afar. Um, we do a lot of outdoor shows. Uh, so we're down at, you know, the fishing show or the ultimate sports show, all of that. we, we see tens of thousands of people come through the door and we do that same kind of skin skirts, skulls, and furs with them. Uh, another pillar for MUCC is habitat. Uh, so this is kind of our on the ground and on the water programs. Um, on the ground has impacted more than 3,500 acres since its inception in 2013 Uh, And this is a volunteer stewardship program. So we, we enlist volunteers from throughout the, throughout the state. Uh, We work with biologists to try to come up with a project that will, that they either can't do because of um, personnel limitations or time restrictions or, you know, whatever number of reasons. And we bring the volunteers out to do that project. So whether it's building rabbitat, which is like building small game shelters, whether it's um, planting mass-producing trees, whether it's picking up rocks out of fields so they can till that field and get a, a food plot or something in. You know, we've done all sorts of projects throughout the state, uh, and that's that program is really meant to try and connect consumptive and non-consumptive users back to the resource. So what we've learned is that... You know, it's not just hunters that are coming out to do this. It's folks who just want a better wildlife, you know. Yeah. So it really helps bring full circle that I, that idea that hunters are helping to pay for the bulk of conservation and they're also giving back and then it brings in non-consumptive folks and helps them at a more deeper level understand and appreciate kind of the impact conservationists are having. And then the last pillar for MUCC is communication. So that's kind of what I talked about with the magazine, you know, all of the hundreds of communications we work out through, work through throughout the year. Um, you know, that could be anything from press releases, NRC, Natural Resources Commission, previews and recaps. When bills are getting dropped, we talk about that. Um, biweekly, we try to put out uh, the Conservation Insider, so if folks are kind of trying to figure out what's going on in michigan's conservation uh, arena that's a good good uh, avenue to learn more about that as well that's
3: that one thing to add real quick nick articulates all of our programs very well but uh kind of under educa- education and communication we also have a tracks magazine which uh, is is a magazine for kids goes over certain wildlife species, uh, certain jobs within the conservation realm that they could, you know, be looking at for for their future, and that goes out to uh, kids in classrooms all throughout the state of Michigan, even in Minnesota and other states as well.
1: Yeah, tracks. That sounds <clears throat> that sounds familiar. Um, you no, know, and I think that that's the the education part of it. Um, to me, is is one of the things that that's most. Interesting and one that I really like, and and maybe it's just because you know I'm a a father of you know two you know relatively young young kids, and you know they know how much I love the outdoors, you know kind of what that meant to me. I mean you know my brother-in-law, my you know our, our family comes from uh, you know both sides from a lot of um, you know outdoorsmen and outdoors women and to try to expose them to things at an early age and to kind of give them an appreciation and just teach them about the outdoors um is has really become uh something that i really try to pride myself on it's something that i really enjoy doing uh with them as well you know like if we're out in the woods taking a walk like seeing tracks uh you know different you know mushrooms out there i mean there's just so much that you can so much information that you can relate to them um is has really become uh something that i think is super cool and i think those are the types of programs uh, where you get into schools that you can, you know, really try to shape that that next wave of, of conservationists and the next people who are sitting in the seats that you guys are sitting in, you know, trying to make you know change at a at a state level.
3: Yeah, I think that's super important because now more than ever, there's a lot of things that are pulling the attention of our youth in every which direction, right? Whether it's sports or their phones or anything like that. So having a, a way to connect through, you know, our magazine, a camp, or, or just taking them outside and, like you said, showing them what a, a morel mushroom is during April or anything like that is super important. Yeah, and you it, know, go, go ahead, Nick. Something
1: we
2: often get lost in is we, we talk about R3 and, and this need to recruit youth, but I would argue as numbers start to decline and we, we continue to see, you know, conservationists drop off, more important is educating youth about wildlife management and why we do it and how it's funded and who has funded it and why they funded it. Um, because when they become 18 and they're able to vote, you know, in 10, 20 years, we, we may see a lot of these wildlife issues and regulations start coming into voting booths, you know, as we lose more and more hunters and we need them to be educated voters and understand wildlife management and understand how conservation works so it's not just getting them to hunt yeah creating a new hunter is great but we also want them to be educated voters you know i think that's important and something we work hard on
1: yeah i think it's it's to kind of piggyback off what you just said there it's not creating new hunters it's i think in a much broader sense, it's creating new conservationists, right? That kind of understand the full spectrum of everything that goes into the outdoors, like you said, from the, you know, where the funding comes from, you know, why hunting is, is conservation, why that is important. Um, you know, why, you, I mean, there's there's a whole list of things, right? And I think that that's, that's absolutely crucial for the next, you know, 10 to 20 years, because I've talked about this with some past guests, is it almost seems that there's this like passing of the guard right now in terms of outdoorsmen or just well in in terms of just the outdoors in general you're getting a much younger generation uh much more vocal generation uh than than years past um it's not kind of the same crowd that i mean i just look at things i'm in my we'll say mid to late 30s um and what uh you know what the outdoors looks like now compared to when i was first introduced as a young kid with my dad and my grandpa i mean it's it's almost night and day, right? Just the way it's talked about, um, kind of the accessibility for it. Uh, so it's, you know, I'm really curious to see where things are going to be in another, you know, twenty to thirty years. So, with uh, obviously, a lot of conservation organizations have have faced, um, you know, kind of some rough times over the past eighteen months. Um, how, you know, how has it affected, uh, MUCC, you know, in terms of, I guess, like a membership standpoint, and then really a lot of the, the work that you guys want to try to get done with either the on the ground projects on the water projects, because I know for a while there, um, I participated in one of the on the ground projects last summer, uh, which is right around here, uh, in a, a fishery that I like to, to spend some time on, but how, how did that affect, you know, a lot of the work that you guys were trying to get done?
2: Yeah, you know, with the onset of COVID, um, politicians, the administration, you know, we we really didn't know what was going on. So we had a lot of kind of crazy things happening with what people could and couldn't do. And MUCC um, ended up suing the, the governor and the DNR director over a motorboat ban. Uh, we had members who were getting tickets. So we kind of saw a big influx of membership them. And it's unfortunate that it took litigation to do that that people didn't see the value before that um so we kind of rode that for a while we were able to get um some of the the federal help uh that other organizations were to kind of help us stay afloat um you know and then we kind of we had to downsize staff uh you know our, our deputy director position was eliminated uh our on the water program went away which was grant funded um so we You know, we we faced the challenges like other organizations did, but I think, you know, the only reason I mentioned the the lawsuit is because that was right on the front end of the pandemic, and we were able to kind of ride that membership wave and influx of of dollars through the pandemic, and it really helped us kind of survive. We don't depend on the banquet model either, so that's another reason we... You know, we, we weren't hit as hard as the Pheasants Forever and Ducks Unlimited, who, you know, Ducks Unlimited canceled. don't remember how billions of dollars were at the banquets they figured. Yeah. I mean, it was unreal. Uh, and we just, we don't depend on that. So, it you know, we were fortunate that we came out on the other side, nearly breaking even in our budget, um, which was good for, for the year folks were having. Uh, and we kind of, you know, we're looking forward to the, to the years to come. But we, we made it out okay. I think just one thing to add there, too, in some of our appeals that we
3: did, we did see a, a lot of people giving during this time. Um, a lot of our individual members and, you know, we talk about grants and I think a lot of grant programs kind of shifted focus to community-based grants or, you know, water-focused grants, clean water. Um, and so that was tough, losing a lot of that funding, but we saw people we saw people give during a trying time. And we rely on those twenty dollar, thirty dollar donations. You know, much like you hear on certain radio stations and things like that. I mean, that's really what uh, we benefit from. We don't have these giant pocket donors. That's not the type of funding model that we that we have. Um, so, so that was really good to see. Yeah, and I think uh, the the method
1: or the model for for raising funds, uh, like the banquet models and stuff like that, is. And I've again, I've I've talked about this with some other people who are. A bit more tied into those types of things like it's almost becoming a a model of the past right i think it goes back to what i mentioned before like with a new generation of you know outdoorsmen and outdoors women like the model of how you should really try to you know collect donations and things like that should change because i mean i think that there's there's certainly a place a time and a place but i don't think that that should be your main Um, source or your main focus for trying to um, recruit new members for you know raising funds or you know getting partners and donors and things like that Um, yeah but no that's that's really good to hear um, that you guys came through on the other side Uh, obviously uh, Nick one of the things I want to talk about like we worked together we did a collaboration shirt last year um, with MUCC to to try to help raise some money. We have another one that's coming out this year. Uh, it's a little bit later uh, in the year, but I know that uh, 2021 has been kind of hectic uh, for a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, that's something that I'm certainly excited about. Uh, I'm hoping, I mean, this podcast will come out on the 14th. Um, and I'm hoping before the end of the month, uh, we can get thing, everything kind of straightened out because um, this, this is a, a design that, uh, well, I'll i kind of let you talk about the design, but one that I think is 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 going to be really popular. I think people are really going to enjoy this design.
2: Yeah, so that was as you said something we kind of worked on last year together, and and this year we were trying to figure out how could we make it a little more unique to MUCC in Michigan, and uh, we partnered with Jay Dowd, who was uh, Upland Life on Instagram. Um, give a little shout out to Jay and he is a pen and ink artist here in michigan he's a phenomenal phenomenal artist um he he drew a a great illustration for us i don't want to spoil it but it's very kind of invoking of of you know your grandpa or your grandma and your dad and your your mom kind of the mantle and it's just it's got a, a an old firearm on it and a bat i mean it's it really—it's
1: very rich in tradition. The picture,
2: yes, yeah, and it—you know—we hope it kind of evokes some of those memories for folks, and that they'll be interested in getting one to support the average conservationist and MUCC.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean the 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 shirts that we sold last year—it was kind of a something that we—I don't want to say like did last minute, but. You know, I think we're we're definitely uh, putting a bit more effort forth in the design and trying to make sure that yeah, it's very uh, unique to Michigan and really speaks to to the members. Um, which you know, I know Jay's done some work for you guys in the past, uh, so he really kind of understands what that membership base looks like and what they kind of respond to. Um, but to to see that response from them, you know, to help raise money in the process uh, has been awesome, and that was kind of one of the things that you know. Well, I mean, that's part of the, you know, the model of the average conservation is is giving back to conservation. But as I have kind of evolved with the company, the more I realize how much um, I like working with organizations in Michigan, right? I mean, that's where I'm doing, you know, 98%, 99% of my recreating. And to to support uh, an organization like MUCC, who, um, like you said, doesn't, stand for like any one species you're trying to you know protect and, and cover everything anything and everything that's related to the outdoors uh to some degree um i mean that's that's where i feel that the money is best spent And then having you know spoken with you spoken with amy um some other uh i believe they're just volunteers uh, like pat hogan um i mean guys like that when you get to know them uh, throughout the course of time, and you you understand what they stand for, kind of what their values are. Um, it, it to me, it made it a really easy decision to you know to want to work together and to try to help
2: you know raise a bunch of money again uh, this year as well. We we appreciate that greatly. Uh, and for folks, I'll do another little plug uh, for our winter magazine. Uh, we're going to actually be featuring. You, Marcus, is a rising star of conservation. So I won't spoil the story, but if folks want to learn more, they can go uh, subscribe or become a member of MUCC and get Michigan Out of Doors and read more about the average conservationist and Marcus.
1: Oh gosh, I'm never, you know, I'm never good at like plugging anything on my own. Like if it's about like me or the company, I'm just I'm terrible. Like I mean, I've been doing this podcast for like over a year, and I think I've like plugged my company. Like actually been like hey, go to the website, check it out like a handful of times, right? Like I just I just feel so uncomfortable doing it. So thank you for
2: making me feel a bit less awkward uh, in that. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think we really respect what you do and we need a lot more folks of our 30s in the 30s and 20s to start thinking about the, the bigger picture of conservation here and how they can give back, whether it's doing a podcast, donating proceeds, just going out and putting one your money where your mouth is on a Saturday and volunteering your time, you know, whatever you can do, find that thing to give back. Take someone out that's never been for a walk out in the woods and just, you know, share what you can share with them. You don't have to put a rifle in their hand. You don't have to put a rod in their hand. Just help them try to understand our natural resources a little better. Yeah.
1: That's very well put. So for people who want to, um, you know, donate, become a member, any of those things, just get
2: involved with MUCC, where's the best place that they can do that? Where can they find out more information? So MUCC.org is our landing page or our website for kind of everything. Um, you can learn about policy, how to be involved in policy. You can learn how to become a member. You can learn about our habitat programs. All the schedules for our upcoming events are on there. Um, you can, you know, sign up for Tracks Magazine, sign up for Michigan Out of Doors Magazine. Uh, so that's really kind of the landing page for everyone to just learn more about our organization in general.
1: Awesome. Well, Ian, Nick, I thank you guys a ton. This was awesome. I mean, I think especially for, you know, Michigan residents uh, that listen to the podcast, I think this was super informative and kind of give them a better idea or at least a better understanding of kind of you know, how conservation is working, how things are getting done here in Michigan. Um, you know, having just spoken to a few members of MUCC over the course of the past 18 months or so, I mean, I, I really feel confident that, uh, you know, the state and our wildlife is in good hands. And, uh, I, I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing.
2: Thanks. We appreciate what you're doing as well. And thanks for being a supporter of, of MUCC. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on as well, Marcus. Appreciated it.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I enjoyed this guys. Well, uh, Have a good rest of your day putting out fires or starting new ones. Uh, Good luck in the woods this season, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you guys
2: soon. Thanks, Marcus. All right, take care.
1: All right. Well, thank you again to Ian and Nick for joining me today. Uh, I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Stone Glacier, Wild Rivers Coffee, and Go Hunt, as well as 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media, where they're going to post only positive, conservation-driven content, so you'll certainly enjoy that in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week again, guys. Hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you.